Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. After last week's episode looking at the challenge facing Rishi Sunak, this week we wanted to turn to Keir Starmer as the Labour Party meets in Liverpool for potentially the last party conference before the next election. One of Starmer's great missions this week is to present himself as the change candidate, to change policy on education, on health, on the economy, but interestingly not on the question of Brexit, which will hang over this conference. So the question we're going to ask this week is, why has the Europe question caused Labour such difficulties this century? And what would Keir Starber in practice do about it in power? Britain's future is inextricably linked with Europe. We must be wholehearted, not half-hearted partners in Europe. It is not a debate about how to abandon Europe, but how to make it do what it was set up to do, improve the lives of people. Being in the European Union, being part of the single market is the best for jobs. Europe needs to change, but that change can only come from working with our allies in the European Union to achieve it. I have repeatedly said that there's no case for going back into the EU, and that includes the single market and the customs union. What you're going to inherit next year is it's grim, right? Yeah, it's going to be really tough. So, Helen, last time we were talking about this, we talked about Tony Blair's Europe policy being derailed by the Iraq war. But there was something else that came along, which was a a year later, this dilemma over what to do about the European constitutional treaties. That's where we're going to start this episode. We could start it at any point, couldn't we? You know, the 70s, the 60s, the 50s. We're going to start it here because we think this is a pivotal moment for understanding where we are today. Yeah, if we go back, Tom, to what we were talking about last time, it was in, I think, our episode about Tony Blair and his legacy, that he was very committed to the idea that he needed almost personally on a almost like messianic mission at times to reset Britain's relationship with the European Union. And he wanted to do that through security. Because his position on the single currency, it was a dead end. Yeah, he. I think he'd wanted perhaps to do that. And Brown was going to act as a veto player on that. But foreign policy was his space. And a lot of that 
in terms of the move that he made was about, I think, trying to show the French and Jacques Chirac, the then president of France, that Britain under him would be willing to let the European Union do some, a little bit of heavy lifting itself on security matters and not just rely on NATO. But that whole approach really relied on Britain and France being closer to each other on security questions and France and Germany not being. And then Iraq pulls that apart because obviously there's that division. France and Germany go one way, Blair goes the other way. So in that sense, I think that Blair's reset for Britain's relationship with the EU had already failed by the time we get to 2004. But the problem he has in 2004 is, is there's a question that is going to really play out in domestic politics in a way in which I don't think the security question did. And that is, she said, this constitutional treaty, because it's very hard, I think, to sustain the idea that there had that there didn't need to be referendums on any of these EU treaties. And remember, there've been quite a number of them in the 90s since, actually since a single European act, but a number during yeah, the 90s. Yeah, quite a lot. You yeah. say, I, for, I forget them when I look back, but you think yeah. now and how difficult it is to do anything. Absolutely, Maastricht, Amsterdam, yeah. Nice. And then there's this one that's literally called the Constitutional Treaty. So how do you make the argument, which basically would say, oh, we don't have to have a referendum because it's got no constitutional significance. It's pretty difficult when it's called the, the Constitutional <laughs> Treaty. Yes. Now, Blair, to begin with, I think, absolutely understands the dangers of going down the referendum road. When mm -hmm. it's first suggested that there should be a referendum on this treaty, he says it's out of the question. Yeah. But then in April 2004, I think it is, he retreats and he says, okay, that there will have to be a referendum. He has kind of a, a record of doing this as well, because he was dragged towards this kind of position in 97, wasn't he under pressure from Jimmy Goldsmith and the referendum party? And that was over the question of the euro um, and, and the potential for a, a referendum. And again, yes. you, you see this kind of pressure from the bottom as well as the top on British politics. From, from the bottom, it's this pressure to somehow come up with a constitutional break to stop British governments going any further into Europe. Yeah, I think what's interesting about it is, is that this story, when we know that it the, the bigger question of Britain's membership of the European Union ends up with Brexit and Cameron's decision to hold that referendum gets framed as a story about the Conservative Party. Yeah. But actually, I think it's a story about British politics and its relationship to the European Union and that these questions about referendums on treaties is pretty central to that. Yeah. It becomes a Conservative Party story because Labour loses power in 2010. But I think that what we can see at this moment in 2004 is the pressure that's that's ramping up on yeah, Blair. Well, I mean, of course, that's the story right from the beginning, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, it was the Labour Party who held the original referendum. Absolutely. And Edward Heath rejected it. Uh, but what's, I think, then striking about the general election in 2005 is that all the three main parties are committed to holding a referendum on this constitutional treaty. And I'm pretty sure that the Scottish nationalists actually um, are too, or at least in broadly sympathetic to that position. But what Blair's did in making that promise to the British electorate for really British domestic political reasons was to change the whole landscape around the constitutional treaty for other states. Right, yes. Because if you look at the countries that had held referendums like in the 90s, if you leave the French on Maastricht out of it. And really that was Mitterrand trying to rescue something for the 
Maastricht Treaty after the Danes had voted down the Maastricht Treaty in their referendum. I think it was that was June of 1992. Then the old member states had, i.e., the original member states had steered clear of referendums. There were things that happened: one Britain seventy-five, Denmark, mm. Ireland. Yeah, Ireland but, has a constitutional lock, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And then what happens is that other countries, when Blair's done this, feel like they need to do the same. Mm. Yeah. And Chirac, in particular, president of France knows how wafer thin the majority for yes was in the Maastricht vote in France. I mean, there's literally decimal places and got 50%. <laughs> mm. He really doesn't want to do it. And he feels he has to. Because Blair promised him he thought that Britain wouldn't do it. <laughs> yes. And then they do. And the sequence of events then is Britain has its general election. Labour wins a majority, obviously not as big as it had done the two previous elections. And then these referendums happen in the Netherlands and France. There's one in Spain as well, the Spanish one wins, but the Dutch and the, the French vote the constitutional treaty. And Blair is bailed out yeah. by that. So he actually begins, well, reasonably quick thing. And obviously he's not going to last very long as prime minister into this third term. So we should really say Labour begins its third term saved yeah, really by others. Yeah, but your point is that in essence, the way we think about it today is this, oh, Brexit is just the result of a part, internal party political split within the Tory party or party management. That's just kind of ahistoric. And that if you look at this period of time that we're talking about, Blair is saved, you know, in quotes from uh, having to hold this referendum, probably lose it at some point after 2005. But it's only an issue sort of delayed. But we're going to have to face this issue of constitutional change happening in Europe and what we do about it. And I think this is a constant problem with the way we think about Europe. And I think it's, we'll get onto this towards the end of this episode about our problem today is Europe is not a static thing. It's a changing constitutional reality that we have to deal with constantly. We can't just f answer the question. You know, the question keeps changing and that's what was happening in 2005 to 2010. Absolutely, because what looks like for Blair just being saved, mm because the question of or the need to hold a referendum goes away. And I think it's incredibly difficult to see how there could have been a majority for supporting that not, treaty. Not then, no. Given what happened in, in France and the, the Netherlands. The problem is, and this I think does haunt the rest of that Labour government, and it actually haunts the EU, mm -hmm. is the pressure to revisit the constitutional treaty, in part because there's quite a number of things about the Nice Treaty, the way in which qualified majority voting works. It's very unsatisfactory to a number of countries, not least France. Mm -hmm. So the pressure to redo the constitutional treaty is very strong. It is essentially at least 90% reconstructed as the Lisbon yep. Treaty. And that's a problem for the Brown government, because if he goes back to the manifesto commitment, there has to be a referendum in Britain on this new Lisbon Treaty and the Irish, in fact, the Irish end up having two referendums on the Lisbon Treaty. Go ahead with that. Everybody else, not least the French, obviously, are like, we're not going down that <laughs> road again. We go down that road again. The tr this treaty is going to get thrown out too. So the Labour government under Brown is left trying to make these arguments that says that the Lisbon Treaty is just a tidying up treaty, there's, there's, that there's no constitutional 
significance <laughs> yes. to it. I saw it in your notes that David Miliband trying to make the same point in Parliament and Ken Clark yeah. more people coming and saying, what are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> you know, of course, this is a constitutional change and you need to sort of man up, just be honest with people and say, but this, we shouldn't be putting these things to a referendum. It should be for the House of Commons. That's Ken Clark's argument. I think it was still his argument over Brexit, which has a perfect logic to it. Yeah, and the, the, the real political problem now for Gordon Brown's government is that the Conservative Party are sticking to their guns about the referendum commitment that they made in the 2005 Under David Manchester, Cameron now, Under David it? Cameron. Yeah. And so they're saying they're actually opposed to the Lisbon Treaty in substance as well. Mm-hmm. But their argument is all of all our parties promised a referendum. Yeah. Now the treaty's back and it just got a different name. And we have to have that referendum. And the Conservative Party is saying that if the Lisbon Treaty is not ratified by mm-hmm. the time that they come into power, because obviously they think by at least 2008 they're going to win the general election when it comes, that they will hold that referendum. Yeah. And so this is really difficult for the French in particular. I mean, you've got Sarkozy basically saying, look, there's a race yeah. between how long Gordon Brown's government can stay in power and the Irish getting this <laughs> second yeah. referendum through because if we have to have another referendum in Britain we'll have to have another referendum in France and this whole treaty is going down again yeah I, I sometimes think of the European Union as a kind of like it's like this unfinished product I mean all states are unfinished products in a way even the United States which has a very sort of set constitution that is harder to change it still obviously changes it has amendments incredibly important amendments through it through its time but the european union is is an unfinished product and kind of in a hypo way it knows that it's an unfinished product as it enlarges as it changes as it gets more power into the center it realizes that well it knows anyway that its structures of governance are not fit for its new responsibility so it has to then change it knew it couldn't stay static after the constitutional treaties were rejected by the French and the Dutch, then it's left with this question of, does it effectively fob off the voters and try and get this thing through undemocratically, or does it end up in a position where it can't function? <laughs> so it, it has, yeah. it's between a rock and a hard place, and I think ultimately it always chooses to carry on functioning. It does, and Gordon Brown sort of accepts that as yeah. a reality. I think he tries to sign the Lisbon Treaty, as yeah. I recall, in a kind of like... Wait, oh yeah, wait, <laughs> this is hilarious. he's the only one who won't actually sign it with everybody else. He yeah. flies in <laughs> secretly a day later, doesn't he, and, and signs it in Lisbon. But that is just so absurd. Yeah. I mean, just so absurd. And it gets at the exact point that you were making at the start, Helen, that this is as, as much, maybe not as much, but it is a core problem for Labour well before David Cameron becomes Prime Minister and we get into this Brexit problem. Maybe it's not as acute but he knows he's got a problem. I think so. I mean, I think that the, the point of departure is, and I think that this is where you can see that the, the two parties really have their significant parting of the ways, mm-hmm. with a caveat that I'll come to, is that the Conservatives say, look, the Lisbon Treaty's gone through, or David Cameron says, because obviously there were some people in the party who dispute this. Yep. But so we're in power May 2010 with the Liberal Democrats, the treaties ratified, there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. Mm-hmm. So the Conservative response in government, which the Liberal Democrats support, at least as part of the coalition agreement, is on the one hand to say that if there are any future treaties, it, a referendum must be legislated for. 
Yeah. So that actually is what comes to get called the referendum lock. So in the case of any future treaty, there will legally have to be a referendum in the United Kingdom. And then Cameron says, we are actually going to try to renegotiate our relationship with the European Union. And we're going to use what he thought was the likelihood of another treaty mm-hmm. in order to to do that. And, and that blows up in his face. Not least, I think, because by this point, Merkel in particular understands that when the British have got, as a, a matter of law, a referendum will be held on a treaty, then that is terribly bad news for another treaty. I mean, I think you could say it would cause the French quite considerable issues as, as well. But actually, by this point, what is happening with British politics on this issue, which begins with the Labour government, is actually constraining, I think, the possibilities of for the EU um, more um, widely. Now, you could say that this is just the Conservatives' problem now. But actually, if you look at Ed Miliband's leadership of the Labour Party, that question about whether they should commit to an in-out referendum ticks away. Yep. Yeah. Up until the 2015 election. And they don't commit to an in-out referendum like Cameron does in the Conservative Party manifesto. And Clegg. Right, I, I think. They've changed their position. The, the Liberal Democrats have changed. Oh, it started. It started yeah. as an in-out because they thought that was a kind of clever gotcha yeah, moment. Yeah, and then it and then David but Cameron what did it. Then Labour does in 2015 is to commit to an in-out on any future treaty. So to change the treaty lock yeah. Yeah. position to it won't be a referendum on the treaty. It will be a referendum on in-out in the case of another. Treaty. So this is like Labour moved quite a long way from the position where Gordon Brown's scurrying around yeah. late at Lisbon. But it feels like the sort of the walls are closing in on each of these British party political parties and they're all having to kind of deal with this reality that constitutional change or changes to the way that the European Union functions is going to happen. It's necessary. And so what are you going to do about how are you going to weave your way out of these commitments that you've made and the logic of putting this to the people at some point. And I don't know, to to mix the metaphors, I guess, I I feel like constitutional change in Europe, it's like something that has to happen. It's like water going downhill. It will find a way of happening, as we saw when David Cameron vetoed the proposals in 2011. Doing nothing is not an option for the EU because at that point it's existential. They have to find a way of making this work. So if David Cameron and, or the British veto it, or if the British uh, put up a, a referendum lock on future constitutional changes, well, the EU has to respond in turn and figure a way out, well, how are we going to survive this? And so it, it's like a constant dance between the UK and other countries on how you manage this changing reality around you. Absolutely. And I think, though, that what we can see in after the 2015 election oh. under Corbyn's leadership is that Labour's past is going to come back and interact with that. Absolutely. Because this is, I think, a, a contingency to the way in which the politics of, of Brexit played out. Because at that point when the Conservatives had won a majority, not a very large one, and they were going to hold a referendum in 2016, Labour had moved to electing as its leader, someone with a long history of Euroscepticism, yep. going back to his arrival in Parliament, someone who is actually reasonably sympathetic to the referendum. He, he, um, voted, he voted against Europe in 75. He I voted think. against 
ratifying a, at least a couple of the treaties, I think, as uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, he is, I mean, to give the history very briefly, Jeremy Corbyn is a Benite, essentially, in this Labour split in, in the 70s. And Tony Byrne, like other prominent members on the left of the Labour Party, were Eurosceptic. They were, they were anti-joining the European Union. They saw it as a kind of great capitalist club and undemocratic. And there was a great tradition of kind of democratic socialism within the Labour movement, which was essentially, look, to win a majority in Parliament is within our grasp. And Parliament being sovereign means that you can enact socialism in Britain. That's the great promise of Attlee's government. That was uh, Michael Foote's great passion. And that was Tony Benn's passion. And Corbyn, I think it is an oddity of post-2015, mm. even in post-2008 world, that of all the people on the left of the Labour Party, it's Jeremy Corbyn with that link back to that Benite past that claims the crown. Because it could have been somebody like McDonnell or Diane Abbott, perhaps. I mean, I think yeah. the reason Corbyn became leader was not because of his Euroscepticism, it was because of kind of a moral socialism that kind of chimed with the Well, with I think the, that the it, it's, it's really a, a bit random, isn't it, amongst that group? It's almost yes. like it's his turn. Yes. And it is a kind of then historical contingency yep. that it happens to be the one who is closest to Tony Benn mm. on the EU question. But then I think what you can see by the time we get to 2000, June 2016 is there is a, like a, a huge like tension. Yes. Because you have actually the majority of Labour Party members and Labour Party uh, MPs who've got no interest in the leave way of looking at it and a, a leader that isn't really willing to campaign, I was going to say with, with any enthusiasm, but I think it's even more than that, is mm. actually in some ways going to impede the Remain campaign because of his unwillingness to campaign on a cross-party Yeah, but to be fair to Corbyn, he, his idea is, look, there is this cosy consensus in Westminster and there has been for so long and the Labour Party has, you know, I, I've been elected to challenge that and Europe is a question, is part of this. I'm not going to stand on a platform with these people who I oppose on fundamental grounds, on austerity and all the rest. I remember speaking to people around Corbyn at the time and they said, it's not just that we're kind of uncomfortable, the whole point, the whole kind of point of this movement is to stand as something, as an alternative. And that's why we're getting these crowds. And that's why we're, and we would put it all in jeopardy. Like 2014, the 2014 referendum in Scotland was something that played on their minds because it was the Labour Party standing with the Tories and, and looking like the kind of unionist establishment and then getting destroyed in this SNP wave that followed. And they didn't want that to happen after 2016. And so they were purposely following this strategy that just happened to align with what Jeremy Corbyn and and those around him also felt, you know. But interestingly, and this is what we're going to come to after the break, Keir Starmer is not part of that at all. He is very much the high representative of the majority opinion. But I think as well, we need to get in at this point in the, in terms of the internal politics of the Labour Party, that referendum in 2016 lets loose a ferocious backlash against Corbyn's leadership. It leads essentially to the parliamentary party declaring it has no confidence yes. in Jeremy Corbyn, precipitating a leadership challenge to him from Owen Smith. Yep. And in, I mean, in 
with no disrespect to Owen Smith, he wasn't exactly a leading alternative light within the Labour Party at the time, but he's being picked both because he's not got baggage from the Iraq war, but also because he's very clearly of the second referendum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We must do this again position. And what's interesting then, and I think that this does shape a lot of the politics that goes on till the Brexit decision in with the 2019 general election effectively, and then Starmer's uh, inheritance, is you have the party members absolutely backing Corbyn in that leadership challenge against the parliamentary rebellion against him, but at the same time wanting Corbyn to be something, to be a Remainer himself. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so the, the thing that's changed is that the referendum itself is politicised the EU question in a completely different way than I think was the case prior to the referendum. So for the first time, actually, you've got this swell of very pro-EU opinion within the membership of the Labour Party and on the parliamentary benches. And that tension between what Corbyn can do, starting from the conjunction of, as you said, his pragmatism about it, plus his history about it, and what both the parliamentary party and the majority of the membership want is going to define what Labour does, not only under the end of Corbyn's leadership, but as we're going to see with Keir Starmer. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Helen, we got to 2017 at the end of that uh, first half there. And really talking about the divisions in the Labour Party and how important they were when understanding this story about Britain's relationship with Europe and and where we've got to. And particularly Jeremy Corbyn's challenge from Owen Smith that he survives after the referendum. And then I think over the next two years, we really see this story playing out in the Labour Party as well, but in a way that's really not covered very much now. We think of that period almost entirely through the prism of Tory divisions, and they are, of course, enormously important and almost existentially so towards the end of 2018 when it looks like they, or is it 2019 when it looks like the Conservative Party, you know, might just cease to exist and be replaced by the Brexit Party. But without the divisions in the Labour Party, during this time, we might not have got to a Boris Johnson premiership because I think it's the splits that start to happen towards the end from MPs who don't want to be seen as opposing Brexit, stopping Brexit, going back on the referendum. It's those people, like people like Lisa and Andy towards the end, who start breaking off 
which allows Boris Johnson to be able to hold the election in 2019 that eventually secures Brexit. So this story of the Labour Party is, is absolutely crucial in this. Yeah, I think we could start here actually with the 2017 general election itself, because I think there's something that happens there that shapes a lot of what was to come, which was the Labour presented itself in that election as a party that accepted the outcome of the referendum and Brexit. The question was, what kind of future relationship would there be? That was the point of departure from the Conservatives. And that meant Labour actually did quite well mm-hmm. with working class leave voters. And that idea that Theresa May had that they could be peeled off and put into the Conservative side, which had happened in those by-elections preceding oh, yeah. the 2017 general and in the um, May local elections. In the May, yeah, in, um, yeah, absolutely. That was a dead end at that point because La- Labour solidified. It was possible to say you could be a Leave voter and vote Labour. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, is the contest that looked like it was going to happen on the other side for Remain votes between the Liberal Democrats and Labour. So Liberal Democrats taking votes away mm-hmm. from strong Labour Remainers. That didn't work out in the way that might have been expected indeed from earlier in the year and think one of the by-elections there as well. Labour did very well with those voters. Mm-hmm. So actually Labour went into that parliament that, be- that ran from 2017 into just before the 2019 general election with a very divided electoral coalition. Mm-hmm. It had taken Leave voters, but it had also taken a lot of voters who wanted Brexit undone. Mm-hmm. Oh, but not, not undone actually, but not to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so you get, God, I mean, this defining election in so many ways for where we are today, home parliament, Theresa May effectively finishes with a result, which means that she can barely govern for the next two years. She's reliant on DUP votes to, to secure her majority. And the Labour Party then under the pressure of what to do in response to Theresa May, who decides to stay on and to try and secure a Brexit that will pass with principally with Tory and DUP votes rather than as some kind of grand coalition that was essentially not possible because of Jeremy Corbyn. But I think though that it's a little bit more complicated than that because I think that the only way in which Theresa May could have thought that she could construct a parliamentary majority for a withdrawal agreement and there's some evidence I think that she did think like this, is with some Labour votes, is with Lisa Nandy types, if you like, voting. Because if you looked at the arithmetic, not even leaving aside the question of the DUP, there were enough Conservatives that weren't coming with her on the Remain side of the Conservative Party that those votes had to come from Labour. So I think that actually exploiting Labour's divisions was fundamental to Theresa May's tactics but what it just didn't take on board was just how difficult it was in that divided Labour Party mm-hmm. for the ones who might be tempted to support the withdrawal agreement actually to do it because the amount of pressure that, that they were under from the membership meant that that was just, it was too much. Do you think it was a was like a wrong-headed strategy from the start? Because I mean, it's, it's obviously a strategy which she can't be open about. Otherwise, then she would face a challenge to her leadership from within the Conservative Party. She, she kind of has to lie about that and then just hope in the shakedown it happens. But I guess that's what happened originally in that the, we joined 
the European community based on a faction of Labour members departing from the Labour whip. Parliamentary MPs in that case. MPs, yeah. So breaking off and pro-European MPs voting with the Tory government of Edward Heath to get it through and the opposition being right-wing conservative Eurosceptics and the main body of the Labour Party. So I guess she could have seen that something like that might have been possible. I think the fundamental problem, which I don't think she ever began to get to grips with, was that she was trying to take a plebiscitary outcome, an outcome from a referendum in which there was a majority for something, and then do that in a House of Commons, which is still constructed on a parliamentary politics yeah. basis. So it's incredibly difficult for anybody in the Labour Party to support doing something mm-hmm. that's going to keep the Conservatives in power. And that's obviously as part of this because the Conservatives were in such a weak um, position. But while that was going on, there was also then this internal struggle within the Labour Party because obviously Corbyn was really prioritising just trying to get the Conservatives out of power and getting to a general election. But then you have Starmer leading a faction that says, no, Labour needs to be the anti-Brexit party. And you can see, I think, that starting really from like 2000. And 18, when he starts pushing for a referendum on a withdrawal agreement, not actually at that point recontesting the original decision. But by the time we get to the outcome of the European Parliament elections, that's quite existential, I think, for Labour as mm-hmm. well, because they only get, I think it's 13.9% of the vote. Yeah. Uh, the Liberal Democrats have come second. So they now face the prospect of in Scotland, the SNP being very strong and the Liberal Democrats moving into being like the Remain party. And it's after that, that then they move to the second referendum position. Corbyn is dragged there. He doesn't want to go there. And Starmer's obviously pretty instrumental in that. But I think that the fact those European parliamentary elections are so bad for Labour, not quite as bad as they are for Labour, but they really are bad, shows the way in which they've been defined by Brexit question yeah, through this parliament. Because Starmer is the Brexit secretary at this point. I mean, do you see it then, really, this whole period, sort of 2016 to 19, as like the two types of politics, one sort of not bleeding into the other, but kind of filtering through, like we're, we're filtering the divide of the referendum through a parliamentary system. And what we have today is the divide from 2016. It's just taken that long to kind of squeeze it through. So that process in the Labour Party of moving from Corbyn to Starmer is this process of imposing that original divide. Well, I think that this is a really complicated question and it goes back actually to some of the things that we were talking about right at the beginning about the way in which constitutional questions then play out and the way in which they work for the EU, the way that inside the EU, that the way they work in then the domestic politics of a member state. And now when Britain left, and that obviously was a constitutional change, complicated when we then think about it as the United Kingdom rather than think about it as Britain because of the yeah. Northern Irish issue and the, 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 the fact that the post-Brexit arrangements are, are um, different is that what we've seen under Keir Starmer is actually an acceptance of the new constitutional status quo. So if we go back to like 2019, we can say, I think that you kind of have an assertion of parliamentary politics that culminates in the 2019 election. Now that's complicated by the fact that 
really the Boris Johnson government should have been dead and buried before it had a chance to hold, to call that general election mm -hmm. because of the fact that it was a zombie government constitutionally yep. shouldn't have existed. But by one means or another, and obviously it was quite tortured the way in which those means worked um, out, you ended up with a general election that pitted the two main parties against each other on the Brexit question yep. and essentially asked the electorate to choose. Yep. And then an outcome ensued. But once then the constitutional change was going to happen, mm -hmm. And Keir Starmer became leader of the Labour Party. Note also, though, using his second referendum credentials in order to do that, he actually stepped back into the, con the new constitutional status quo. That is, it, it is really interesting, isn't it, that this tension baked into Starmer, or maybe it's an irony rather than a tension, is that by 2019, Starmer has moved from that position of um, holding a referendum on whatever new deal we get with Europe to holding a referendum that will include the option of nullifying the original referendum. So just staying in the EU on the original terms. And that position helps him then secure the leadership of the Labour Party afterwards, at which point he then accepts the status quo that has emerged out of the 2019 ref uh, election, which is Boris Johnson's deal. And that is a that is an odd place to get to for Starmer. But then he's got there and he has a party that is almost uniformly now pro-European. It's not yeah. like the 70s or, or the Labour Party, even that Tony Blair had. This is a almost 100% pro-European party who thinks that leaving the European Union was a mistake and it would be better if we it was reversed. That's the kind of reality of where we are today. Yeah, I mean, I think there's one caveat we should put in there, which is that it was actually quite a tortured position, obviously, that Jeremy Corbyn got into the Labour manifesto in 2019 because it wasn't a straight second referendum. They were supposedly going to renegotiate the agreement again yes. and then hold a... Let's strip away the layer after layer after a layer of obfus obfuscation and you get to nullify the first referendum. Yeah, but from Starmer's perspective, I think that what we can see is that, I think there's a certain cynicism, to yeah. be honest, in terms of using it and then dispatch, using it to win and then actually, okay, get back into the into line with the new constitutional status quo because it's very difficult to do anything about it. Which is well, something we should definitely keep in our heads as we as we yeah. discuss this and and then though is that he's very aware though right from the moment he becomes leader that brexit is central to why labor has done badly mm -hmm. in 2019 it's not the only reason it's a conjunction of a corbyn issue and a brexit mm -hmm. issue but if you look at the seats that were lost and would have to be won back next time whatever starmer thought about it mm -hmm. the question is it was very difficult to see how Labour was coming back to power without winning what got called those red wall seats. So in terms of reconstructing an electoral coalition that was a winning one for Labour, then it was very hard to start contesting Brexit. Now that still leaves a legacy because it means that actually, as you say, you've got a party that in parliament-wise, MPs-wise, members-wise, does want these questions. Mm -hmm debated and some of them do actually want the question contested absolutely yeah uh, and yet the electoral politics of it 
are not quite in the direction. Now, you could say, well, now there's, there's been a backlash against Brexit and it's easier to mobilise opinion against it. But then that runs into the how you actually go about doing this in practice and how fickle is actually public opinion. Yeah, well, I think this is where we're, we're turning to the Labour Party conference now and projecting forward uh, into a future Labour term in office and how they deal with this. Because when the first thing that strikes me listening to you there, Helen, is that just as the European question is constantly changing, and so you have to kind of uh, change with it and, and figure out what your response to the constitution or whatever constitutional issues are emerging from, from the EU, so with the parliamentary politics in Britain. So if Keir Starmer is elected on a mandate not to reopen the question of Brexit, then he is quite bound by that in many ways. But he's also, if he does do well with that strategy in these areas that voted for Brexit, then those MPs are going to feel a certain way um, about how to handle the relationship with Europe over the next five years. So there's the democratic politics that Keir Starmer is going to have to navigate and whatever MPs are elected. I mean, the same way that you see uh, the divisions in the Tory party today between, you know, in quotes, red wall MPs and those from the shires in the south thinking about issues in a different way because they have different electoral bases to have to defend. I guess that is going to be an issue. And then, of course, you've got the Scottish MPs that potentially might suddenly form a decent block of uh, Labour support in Parliament. And they might have a different view to this entirely from Labour's red wall voters. So you might get this uncomfortable mix of MPs in Parliament after the next election. Yeah, I think what we can see thus far is being that Starmer's been able to navigate through these waters without that much mm-hmm. difficulty. If we go back to 2020, when I think that there probably was an opportunity to contest Brexit in one sense, which was the fact that the transition arrangements were still in play mm-hmm. and then the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. He didn't make any move to say we think the transition arrangement should be extended because of the pandemic. He didn't turn Labour really into a party that contested the trade agreement mm-hmm. that the Johnson government negotiated. It wasn't wholehearted support, but it, it, it wasn't sort of the language of this is really awful for um, Britain. And now the position is we need to get closer on a number of issues on trade and on security but it's not we're going to rip everything up and start again no no this is the really difficult issue for for the Labour Party because it says we want to get closer to the European Union on you know on security and, and on trade and in a way I think you get these hints that will help the situation in Northern Ireland. And yet it's very unclear how you're supposed to do this. So the trade and cooperation deal, the Brexit deal that the Boris Johnson government negotiated is due to be not up for renewal or a renegotiation or anything like that. It's up for a a period of essentially to check how it's operating, uh, is my understanding. Uh, at some point quite... Uh, 2025, early, I think. 2025, so quite early on in a future time of government. And the Labour Party are, are saying, well, we'll use this to make this deal better. And the European Union are kind of responding, you know, I'm not sure, that's not what we're signed up to. 
And I get these sort of awful echoes of Britain's negotiations with Europe going all the way back to the 70s, where we're just talking almost at cross purposes here. And the European Union have got a quite a clear position, which is, you know, if you want better access, you essentially have to sign up to the single market. If you want to deal with the trade border between Britain and Northern Ireland, you have to sign up to the the trade, the customs union, positions that Labour, the Labour Party have said they don't want to. Absolutely. I mean, Starmer's been quite explicit that he doesn't support rejoining the single market or the customs union. Yeah, because and for good reasons, isn't it? You know, that you would have to accept free movement of people. You have to become, in quotes, a rule taker, all of these central issues. I mean, you haven't had the old Benite or Atleyite democratic socialist response in the Labour Party yet to this idea of rule taking. Not that I've detected this idea that, well, hang on, if we want to build a certain type of economy, national economy at home, how can we do that while being a rule taker from the EU? I haven't detected any of that yet. So it doesn't seem to be a kind of philosophical opposition or ideological opposition to Europe. It seems to be a kind of practical question of, well, how on earth would we actually improve the Johnson Brexit deal from our perspective? How would we do it? How do we go about doing that in any meaningful way? And with the with the Northern Ireland question, how on earth do you do that without just opening an extraordinary can of worms there in a way that isn't about getting back into the single market and the customs union, you're back to the same dilemmas that Theresa May faced. And so, I mean, what do you think? Because I I feel like Starmer is going to attempt to just keep this issue quite minimal in his first term. Well, I think that this is where we've got to bring the the European Union itself back into it. And I think here, actually, there are some interesting parallels with Blair that we might come to. And that is, is that Macron in particular, but also to some extent, Schultz, the German Chancellor, have been pushing this European political community. Yep. This idea that actually it should be a cool EU and then tears around that. Mm-hmm. And you know, there obviously have been some meetings of this forum, whatever we want to call it, that it exists. Only last um, week. Yeah, it? at the moment. And then I think the idea would be that the United Kingdom would be in an outer tier. Mm-hmm. And if you say, well, what's going on here? Some of this, I think, is driven by the question of what to do about Ukraine Mm -hmm. amongst those member states that are less enthusiastic, shall we say, about the idea of Ukraine becoming a full member of the European Union. So that's a kind of security-driven side Mm -hmm. of this notion. And I think that's where the allure of having a closer relationship with Britain or a more formalised relationship with Britain comes in too. Because if we go back to those negotiations about the trade agreement that the the Johnson government pursued, is they were explicit right from the beginning that security was going to be outside it. They didn't want a new security partnership. The the EU, particularly the French, I think did. And that is one place where you can say that Labour can has got a more specific policy commitment of saying, or looks like it has anyway, of saying we would negotiate a a formal security partnership. David Lammy, I think, has been quite keen on that line of argument. And it's not difficult to see how that then fits in to Macron's vision, if that's what it is, because that's where it began anyway, of a European political community where the outer tier of it, if you like, was security-orientated. Just on that, I guess if you were if you were to defend that idea, you would say there is huge potential for a kind of not just a defence pact 
but a kind of industrial defence pact. So if you can find a, a agreement with the European Union countries on these questions, that you can open up a market and cooperation between British defence industry working alongside the French and the Italian defence industries in a way that I think was existing before Britain left the EU and which we are now kind of locked out of and we're faced with a question about who do we partner up with and I think AUKUS interestingly is part of that question this alliance with the Australians and the Americans on nuclear submarines because that is seen internally in Downing Street as partly an industrial policy as well as a, a foreign policy question. It's about linking up British defence industry with the American and the Australian, and that's obviously quite coherent in Britain's grand strategy because it ties into the Five Eyes intelligence and NATO and it, this kind of tilt towards containing China. So that's that. there's a coherence to that. And so it's interesting to think how this Labour Lammy policy would clash with that new strategy because I don't think they want to reopen any of that AUKUS agreement. I, I, I'm told that you can, you could in theory do both and maybe that's, you know, you want to try and have your cake and eat it, have a defence relationship with the French as well as the Americans. But I do think there is an obvious potential tension there. I agree. And I, I think that there's another issue as well and th that goes in a way back to this question of... British-French security relations. Mm -hmm. because yeah. That's why I think there's a bit of a parallel with Blair, who, who thinks that a French president who wants to do more with the European Union on the security side is a good thing yeah. for, for Britain. Mm -hmm. And in a way, he wanted to exploit those Franco-German differences that were there in the early 2000s before the Iraq war and the Franco-German relationship is again in not in a particularly great state the moment so there might be some sense for Starmer that he can really work on Macron and it's notable that Macron is the EU leader who he's been to visit he went last yeah. month to but to what end though that that is the question as to what the end is because if you think about it in in sheer security terms then I think it it makes some sense in the sense you could say that in the face of all the geopolitical problems that Europe as a continent, and I'm saying deliberately as a continent yeah. and not the EU face, that it really is not good for anybody if the Britain-European Union security relationship isn't well thought out. But what it raises, I think, is the, the problem when you move on a step and say, we'll get closer to the French on security because then we'll get a payoff for it on the economic questions, on the trade questions. And you can definitely hear this in some of the things that all of Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves and, and David Lammy say when they talk about this, is, is if we just show some goodwill. But if we go back to that Theresa May period, that was why she didn't want to make security questions a negotiating part of the negotiating strategy. It was more like, we'll be nice to the French, we'll send some extra troops to Mali to help them out. Yep. Uh, and that will mean that they'll be more cooperative with us about the terms of the withdrawal agreement. And of course, it doesn't mean any such thing. You just take the concession and, it's and a conceit. It's a conceit from the beginning. Yeah. I, I think there was a point, I remember, when Theresa May was holding it back as well. And there were kind of these little hints, I think maybe from Philip Hammond, the Chancellor at the time, and others, that this was a kind of weapon that we would withdraw 
somehow. And then it quickly became, no, 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 of course, we would never withdraw from, you know, European security theatre. So, yeah, I just think it's very naive to think that we can use it somehow to win any significant concessions on economic points. I think as well, if you go back to one of the first things that Boris Johnson did in office, so this is before the December election, so when July, I think it was like 2019, was to end all the discussions that the Theresa May's government was having with the EU, particularly the French and Germans, about having a unified EU response to what Iran was doing in the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. And basically saying, no, we're going to join the American naval mission. It was a really sharp turn on that security um, question. And obviously, this question like of Iran mm -hmm. is going to be very much to the fore for, for UK and for the European Union. Especially so after when it, the Israeli... Uh, this, absolutely, this. that's what I mean. It is in the sense that if you say, okay, what are going to be the foreign policy issues that Keir Starmer government is going to have to work through in trying to develop a closer security relationship with the European Union, this is going to be right near the top of it. And the history of Britain agreeing with other European Union states about Middle Eastern questions. Think back to what did for Blair in that respect over Iraq. But Iran has also been a pretty divisive question at times. Yeah, but you've also got the even bigger picture of, of China and wh where the European Union is going to land on that question. Then you've got net zero. Then you've got NATO as well. So these are all questions. So it's all very well to say, you know, we'll have closer security relations with with the EU and perhaps something can be negotiated on that. But unless Britain's core strategy changes, which is that our principal vehicle to protect European security is NATO, and the French who see who see any more NATO as a problem because they want to build up Europe as an alternative security pole away from the United States, this uh, you know, strategic autonomy point. Unless Labour comes up with a theory on do we support strategic autonomy or do we want to ensure that Europe pushes all of its security concerns through NATO? Because that is the vehicle in which Britain has most influence and will continue to have most influence. Unless these things change, then I, I, there is just an obvious tension in Labour's policy that will play out over the next few years. and It has to. It is. I mean, I think that there's a question about what happens in the United States after the election. Mm -hmm. Next year, I mean, it's very difficult, I think, to imagine that Labour would pull away from Washington on NATO questions if Joe Biden or a Democrat is president from January yeah. 2025. If a Republican, if Trump were to be president, that that would that would be a, a whole other question, and that probably would really reopen the strategic autonomy question for the European Union on terms that weren't just the French. So that's fascinating, isn't it? Because you could then see a position where, especially if the United States was withdrawing from NATO in the most extreme form, but uh, or just less obviously committed to it. I mean, that wasn't actually the case during the first Trump presidency, even though he made all of those noises. You actually had more American troops in Europe by the end of the Trump presidency than you had at the beginning. I think there were just um, more of them were moved to Poland, is my recollection, rather than in Germany. So there's a difference between what happens in practice under a Trump presidency, future presidency, and what the rhetoric is. But I, I think it's not 
conspiratorial to think that a second Trump presidency would be uh, would be different from the first, and that he would perhaps uh, act more on his instincts, which are definitely uh, skeptical of of NATO. And then again, a question of net zero that might come into this question as well, because I think this is an example where we can't think of Europe as a static question that we need to respond to, or the world, as you say, the United States and, and, and China. And on, on this question of net zero, after the Sunak announcement, you had the Europeans briefing that what you will create, the Sunak announcement about slowing down on reaching certain targets within the overall net zero aim by 2050, that would create new borders on carbon credits and that kind of thing between Britain and Europe. So you have a, a policy in Europe that materially constrains what Britain can do or, or imposes costs on Britain, you know, whether we like it or not. I mean, this carbon credit scheme, as I understand it, is very simply the Europeans saying well, we can't have industries seeping out to other parts of the world where they have lower emission standards. So we'll effectively put a tax on imports uh, to try and manage that, to stop that happening. And so we could be one of the ones who are facing that tax. And then you'll say, well, what happens with the United States under a future Trump presidency when it comes to these kind of policies? I mean, I think one thing that's really interesting here, it's always slightly puzzled me as to why Labour hasn't made more of saying we will align the UK's carbon trading system with the EU's carbon trading system, particularly because for a long time, the prices were really quite parallel mm-hmm. with each other. But this announcement, or the recent announcements by Sunak have, have really quite changed that. And I think that this is going to be a really big question for Labour in government, assuming that that's where that they're heading. Is it going to be possible from their point of view to maintain this essentially independent carbon trading system? Or is it going to have not only to have policies that align it with the EU, but actually in some sense merge. And I think what is really striking if we try to bring all this together is that we can see already, I think just in the conversation that we're going back and forth Mm -hmm. with each other, is how many questions that the outside world and the EU itself is going to generate for this next Labour government. There can be all this internal politics within... Britain, they can be within the United Kingdom as well. It can be within the Labour Party, just as they've been within the Conservative Party. But the actual big questions are actually going to be coming at the Labour government. They're not going to be set from within the Labour government. And then, you know, there's this Kissinger line that I always come back to about the challenges of leadership. And it's that when these decisions hit a president or a prime minister's desk, they're, they're very difficult. They're like 51, 49 decisions. You know, if they're 80, 20, 60, 40 or something like that, they've been decided by uh, civil servants or ministers at a lower level. Once they get to the, uh, a president or prime minister's desk, they're very difficult. And often you have to make them without all of the information available to you. So you make them based on instincts. And what ultimately are the Labour Party's instincts when it comes to this? And what is Keir Starmer's instincts? And I think you can go back to the start of this conversation and they are pro-European. Now they're going to inherit a situation where we have agreements in place that are going to complicate those instincts and make them very difficult. And you also have conflicting instincts. Don't you have, I'm I'm an internationalist, I'm pro-NATO, I'm pro the special relationship, you know, relations with Australia, and then I'm pro-European as well. And they are going to come into conflict and that is going to be fascinating to say, well, which instinct triumphs? 
when there's some decision on carbon trading or NATO after a Trump pullout faces a Prime Minister Keir Starmer. Indeed, and I'm sure we're going to return to some of these questions. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please do share with your friends and family, like and hit that subscribe button and see you next time. These Times is produced by Ewan Daughtry.